0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Movie Brewer Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Willis, and this is the podcast where I crack open a fresh beer and talk not just about movies, but the stories behind actually getting them made. Uh, I'm going to start out this podcast by talking about one of my favorite films of all time, Moneyball. Now, this movie works for me on so many different levels, and it was nearly killed before it even got off the ground. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about it with you, and be warned, you know, spoilers may be ahead. But first, we're going to start this podcast off by, uh, by cracking open a fresh beer here. Right now in front of me, I have a Fenway Froth Session IPA by New City Brewing. Obviously, I think it's pretty clear why I chose this beer. Having recently moved back to the Northeast, uh, Fenway and the Boston Red Sox are a very dear part of my life. And you know, if we're talking about Moneyball in a movie about baseball, uh, the connection's not really hard to make. So I'm going to crack this open real quick. All right. So this beer is from New City Brewing, like I said, in East Hampton, Massachusetts. It's hoppy. It's golden. It's a smash beer. (laughs) They're calling it single malt and single hop. Uh, The malt is a golden promise Scottish barley, and the hops is the Equinox hops. Uh, Equinox actually is a fun hops to talk about because it used to be called Equinox hops, which is a mouthful to say. But the gym Equinox had a slight problem with there being a hops strain uh, named after the same thing, uh, and there was a crazy lawsuit and all that kind of stuff. So they've renamed it now, Equinot, spelled E K U A N O T Equinot, maybe Equinot. Who knows? Maybe I'm pronouncing this terribly. So let me uh, let me take a sip here and see what it feels like. That's really good, you can definitely feel it's nice crisp, uh a little hazy, nothing too too overpowering um and overall a nice smooth, crisp beer. let's see, it's five percent a p v so you know it's a good uh good beer if you're gonna be out there just watching baseball as I guess we're kind of watching baseball right now, right? I don't know, maybe not, so. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, overall, I'm I'm kind of digging this. It's going to be a nice one to sort of sip as we're talking about Moneyball. Uh, that being said, let's get to it here. All right, let's start out with a brief overview of the plot line of Moneyball. So, released in 2011, Moneyball is based on a book by the same name, by an economics reporter named Michael Lewis. Uh, it follows the story of the Oakland Athletics general manager, Billy Bean, uh, who in the movie is played by Brad Pitt, as he struggles to build a winning ball club with a shoestring budget with the help of Peter brand uh, played by Jonah Hill in one of his first serious roles they start recruiting bargain bid players based on their statistics their their batting averages various saber metrics uh, and not the traditional you know measures of success not is he a heavy hitter is he a player that's going to look good for the ball club itself they're pure number counters I think at one point he says they are card counters at the blackjack table Uh, essentially all of baseball is telling them that they're fools, that this is never going to work. It's the reoccurring theme through the whole thing that like you're standing outside the norm. How dare you? How dare you challenge what baseball really is? But after a a rough start to the season, they start winning and they go on to make a historic record-breaking 22 game winning streak. And the movie sort of follows the struggles of them trying to pull this team together. Uh, I think the best line in the movie that really brings you together is, "It's an island of misfit toys come together to play baseball." So Brad Pitt gives a knockout performance in this. Uh, it's it's a man who doesn't fit in with the norms that he's trying to change. His backstory as a baseball player as well mirrors the the kind of things that they're trying to do. And all around, it's it it's just honestly, it's one of my favorite movies. But. If we go through the background, I want to talk about the history of this movie because it almost didn't get made. Uh, Moneyball was originally optioned in 2004 and a man named Stan, I think it's Chervin. Uh, I hope I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but Stan Chervin originally began adapting it in early 2004. Uh, a few years later in 2007, Brad Pitt was attached and subsequently Chervin there, uh, soon left. Brad and him, and he didn't really get along in terms of their vision of the film. It was much more comical, much more commercial, you know, your standard everyday kind of baseball movie. So from there, uh, we got a new screenwriter uh, in Steve Zalayan. Again, Zalayan, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And for the first time, Dave Frankel uh, as a director. Frankel's tenure was very, very short. Uh, He was soon replaced by Steven Soderbergh. So already in the beginning of this, we're getting a very strong pattern of like nothing sticking. This isn't really working. People are in, people are out, people are in, people are out. But Soderbergh and Brad Pitt, they're they're getting along. They're working closely with Sony, and you know, trying to uh, to build this up. And three days before uh, they're set to start shooting in June two thousand in June two thousand nine, Amy Pascal and Michael Ayton of Sony Pictures. They pull the plug. It's done. They're like, this isn't going to work. They're not agreeing with Soderbergh's take on the whole thing. Uh, And they cut it. So the main reason they pulled it was Soderbergh was going for a very docu-style film. Uh, He was talking about interviews with actual ballplayers, you know, straightforward, not really a narrative story that, that Sony could really get behind and, you know, commercially put out. When they pulled the plug, they turned around, and they said, Brad, Steven, you know, if you guys want to take this to another studio, we understand, uh, but it's got to be before y'all start shooting, which, as I said, was in a few days. So they tried to pull it together. No other studios really interested. It kind of fell apart, and Steven Soderbergh left the project. I will say thank God for Brad Pitt and Amy Pascal, though, because they weren't quite ready to give up on it. Uh, they shopped it around for a little bit, uh, they said there's still some work that needs to be done on the script. And they reached out to Aaron Sorkin, who had recently worked on the social network for for Sony Pictures and, you know, had some some conversations going on there. Aaron Sorkin, of course, obviously best known for the social network, as I said, also the West Wing, uh, but also relevant here. He produced a show in the 90s called Sports Night, which was about reporting on, well, sports, sports. Um, so he had a you know an interest in, in pursuing the the film, and they started doing slight rewrites. Uh, Sorkin was very uh, adamant to not completely deconstruct the script that Zillin uh, had been working on. He thought it was strong. He just thought it needed some touch-up in a couple places, so they worked very closely together to sort of bring it together. Now, the big thing they needed was a director, uh, and they were referenced to Bennett Miller, who is notoriously picky for the films he does. Bennett Miller's film before this was Capote in 2005, so it had been a solid four years since he'd taken on a director project. But he came, he sat down with Brad Pitt, who was very adamant about making the film, and Pitt was able to quell a lot of Miller's fears about making a large studio film, working on something that was just going to be another stereotypical baseball movie. But together they worked out, along with Aaron Sorkin, a way to package it as a Brad Pitt blockbuster movie that was actually a really heartfelt, uh, dramatic, well-made film. So finally, they kind of had all the main players in place. They had Brad Pitt signed on as their leading man, who would also agreed to help produce the whole thing. Uh, they had Aaron Sorkin doing touch-ups on an already solid script. And they had Bennett Miller helming the ship. Uh, They also brought on Wally Fizer as the director of photography, who was well, well known for his work with Christopher Nolan and the Dark Knight films and Inception and things like that. I want to pivot a little bit now. Uh, Not really a pivot, just kind of a continuation on, I guess. And I want to talk about the cast that they pulled together for this, because this is really, I think, my favorite part of this film. It the casting here is so well done, so spot on, and so in parallel with the themes that the film is establishing. So you've got Brad Pitt in as your leading man, you know, and Brad Pitt, he's Brad Pitt. It's, you know, you're you're talking about a man that everyone in America knows his name. He's been in films for decades. He's at this point hot off the heels of things like Ocean's 13, uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and of course, Inglourious Bastards, a Quentin Tarantino movie, huge at the box office. It's Brad Pitt. Anything with his name on it is going to have a real box office pull to it. For the supporting role of Peter Brand, who is an amalgamation of real-life characters, but based heavily on Billy Bean's real-life assistant GM, Paul DePodesta, Bennett Miller turned to Jonah Hill. At the time, Jonah Hill had been almost exclusively a comedic actor. I mean, he was famous for his breakout roles in Knocked Up, super bad. Uh, But Jonah had been looking for something to sort of break out of his comfort zone. He was worried about being put into a box. You know, you, you don't want to get to the end of your career being like, oh, that guy that did comedies for his entire career. He had had a bit of a success with a serious role in the film Cyrus, but Moneyball was a much larger platform that he could flex his dramatic muscles in. Uh, Hill has talked since at length about how he identified again with the themes of the of the film and how he himself felt like he was joining an island of misfit toys, uh, people who have value but are overlooked by the industry as a whole. You know, it, the parallels kind of write themselves in that. We also get Philip Seymour Hoffman in the role of Art Howell. Hoffman had worked with Miller on Capote, uh, his previous film, and had scheduling conflicts to begin with, but they cleared up and he was excited to join the cast. I mean, working with Miller had won an Oscar before, so I'd be excited to join a cast with that director again too. So also a lot of the smaller roles uh, in the film were actually filled by former ballplayers and former uh, professional scouts. While Bennett Miller wasn't really looking for a direct interview docu-style thing like Soderbergh was, he did want to keep some level of authenticity so that when he had a player at the mound or a player up at bat, they looked like they were knew, knew what they're doing. For example, Stephen Bishop, uh, who plays the veteran ball player David Justice, actually spent three years playing professional ball in the minors. So a lot of the the minor characters like that have that level of authenticity, which I think really honestly just adds that extra layer to the actual film. Um, But by far, my favorite casting story from this film is that of Chris Pratt. Now, Chris Pratt was well-known at this point uh, as the lovable goofball Andy Dwyer on Parks and Recreation. He'd been there for a while. He, I think they were in their third or fourth season when they were when he started auditioning. Uh, but like Jonah Hill, he was looking to stretch a more dramatic muscle. Uh, he went in and auditioned for the role of Scott Haddeberg the former catcher turned first baseman who ends up being in the film sort of a secret weapon or, or the main key to this whole team. Uh, he went in and auditioned, uh, and then the word came back from his agent that Uh, They loved him for the role, but he was just too overweight to play a professional ball player, which, you know, would suck to hear for anyone, I think. But Chris Pratt being, you know, Chris Pratt, starts going to the gym, starts trying to lose weight, uh, you know, is working out, working out, working out, eating right, starts pushing the writers of Parks and Recreation to put Andy on rollerblades all the time. I think it, it starts in the... Uh, third season, maybe fourth season, that inexplicably he's just rolling around on rollerblades all the time. And that was part of Chris Pratt's weight loss plan to to land this role. He did what he could and every week was calling back saying, hey, have they cast Scott Hatterberg yet? Hey, have they cast Scott Hatterberg yet? Every week he comes back, no, no, no. He keeps going to the gym. And then eventually he calls. He says, look, I've lost 30 pounds. I'd love to come in and read again. He comes in. They love him, as they did before, and they cast him in the film. It That's just, I think, one of my favorite casting stories from this film, if not all time. Uh, and I think it's just, I, I don't know, I'll move on. Alright, I want to talk a little bit about the actual filming outside of the casting and the pre-production and stuff like that. A lot of the production of Moneyball, and this is a theme I hope you're starting to see uh, build up here, a lot of the production mirrored the actual struggles that the Oakland A's were going through. The production didn't have a lot of money. They had a huge story that they had to get and still make feel like a like a large Hollywood film. Uh, for instance, over the course of a baseball season, the Oakland A's travel around playing baseball in all these different stadiums. But of course, you're not going to fly crews all over the country, film in all of the different stadiums. So they had to get creative. They blocked out... I believe it was Dodger Stadium. They had three days that they could shoot in there and they went for a hyper-stylized kind of version of a baseball game. Uh, It's very dramatic lighting. You don't really see a lot of the stands or things like that. It's focused in just on the characters and the individual plays and things like that. That's a technique they use to try and build the scope of this film without blowing their budget. So they shoot for 58 days. They spend 36 weeks in the post-production suite. Uh, A normal film is usually around, I want to say, 15 to 20 weeks, depending on the size and scope. 36 weeks is a very long time. So it opens in early September. It premieres in early September 2011 at the Toronto Film Festival. And then a couple weeks later, opens nationwide, just shy of 4,000 screens. It opens at the number two spot, um, second only to Warner Brothers' A Dolphin's Tale, which was a surprise hit that no one really saw coming, but it opens to very good reviews. Uh, I think it has a 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and we're off to the races. Uh, I mean, when you get a movie that's coming out in late September, you tend to be looking at something that's, that's, if not openly campaigning for a, an Oscar nomination, then heavily hinting at it, and I don't think Moneyball is any exception here. This this movie was built with the Oscars in mind, not explicitly, but, you know, when you put together a cast and directing team like this and really sit in late September, that conversation's had. And it worked. I mean, uh, that year uh, it was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Brad Pitt, Best Supporting Actor for Jonah Hill, uh, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Shrevin, Zalian, and Sorkin. Uh, well, it didn't win any of those Academy Awards the nomination itself broke Jonah Hill's mold as solely a comedic actor, uh, and paved the way for him to, to take on such roles as he did in the Wolf of Wall Street, Django Unchained, Netflix's Maniac, all of the, all of the various things that he's been able to get phone calls for since. So, yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's sort of my rundown of of the history behind Moneyball. I, Again, I know I've, I have sound like a broken record at this point, but I love this film. I love that it takes on a statistical understanding of things without losing its heart or becoming boring or anything like that. I think it's a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen it yet, it's well worth your time. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, I hope you haven't been listening, I guess. It's been a little spoilery. Spoilery? It's been a little spoilery up in here. I want to close out with just a, a baseline quick fact rundown. I, I kind of think of these as, uh, I don't know, the talking points you would have about Moneyball in a in a party setting, if that makes sense. You know, the things that it's good to have in your head. Uh, in, in true Aaron Sorkin fa- fashion, the facts that you would blurt out in rapid succession as you talk about uh, this movie. Uh, so here we go. Quick fact rundown. The budget was $50 million for this movie. The domestic total gross, that's the U.S., was $75.6 million. Worldwide, it grossed $110 million. Uh, It opened on September 23rd, 2011 at number two. It did $19.5 million in its opening weekend, second only to Warner Brothers' A Dolphin's Tale. It was the 47th highest grossing film of 2011, which is... Not too bad. Not great, but not too bad. The highest grossing that year was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, so I don't know how you really compete with something like that. Uh, And it came away with six Academy Award nominations. So there we go. Uh, I want to come back to my Fenway Froth here for a little bit. Uh, I'm having another sip here. It's very nice. It doesn't... It's got a nice crisp taste to it. it. It's got that IPA sting to it, but not a kick in the teeth. It's very, very soft. Uh, I don't think I mentioned the top. The reason it's called a Fenway Froth, aside from the baseball knot and that it's a Massachusetts beer, uh, the bar in the New City Brewery is made from an old piece of Fenway Park, which I thought was fascinating. So yeah, that's going to do it pretty much for uh, the inaugural episode of the Movie Brewer podcast. I hope you found my analysis here intriguing. It's certainly a fun new process for me. Hopefully, it's not too fact laden. And I, I assume as I continue on, I will find a better balance between review and straight up blurting facts at you. But yeah, I'd love to hear what you think. I'm on social media at The Movie Brewer. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, I'm just getting this started up. So, you know, don't go hunting for a bunch of archived content. I'd love to hear if there's a movie you'd like me to do an episode on Uh, a lot of these films that come out and people love actually have pretty intense stories behind them. Uh, so feel free to reach out and, uh, I hope you'll tune in for the next episode. I got a lot, uh, I got a lot of fun movies lined up. So thanks for tuning in and I'll, I'll see you next time.